the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Well, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. We are underway now at 11 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock. And it is a Thursday, the 18th morning of the fifth month in the year of our Lord, 2023, and we are loaded today. We are literally packed up today. Uh, we've got guests all over the place coming up in a half an hour, less than a half an hour, right after the bottom of the hour, we're going to hear from Heather McDonald. Why? Because we're talking race today, particularly in hour number one, we are talking race. After the President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden, spoke before an all-black audience at an all-black university at their commencement exercises on Saturday and told an all-black audience that they really need to fear white people because white supremacy is the uh, is the greatest threat that our nation faces, the greatest threat that they face, uh, we're going to examine that. Stand up against the poison of white supremacy as I did my inaugural address to a single out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland. Uh, Heather McDonald is going to respond to that. Heather McDonald um, is one of the foremost authorities on this subject. She has written extensively about it, books and uh, columns and articles, very well researched. Heather McDonald has a new book out called Race 
before merit, race above merit, I think is actually what it is. Uh, and um, we're going to hear from Heather McDonald, and we're going to talk about whether or not it is white supremacy that threatens African Americans, or if it is African Americans that threaten A, themselves, and B, white people. What do the statistics say when you remove emotion from the discussion and you focus solely on statistical evidence of who is harming or threatening whom? What does it show? Heather McDonald will join us to talk about that coming up at 935. Uh, also this morning, coming up at 1010, of course, since it is Thursday, we will enter into the culture wars once again, fighting the battle for us. And with us is our leader, Dr. Everett Piper. That'll be at 1010 this morning. Uh, Steve Moore, former economic advisor to President Trump, will join us at 1035 to break down ESG and why it is so many of the companies that your retirement funds are invested in um, are not necessarily the highest performers. But they're being invested in because of their social justice or their climate justice ideology. In other words, you may be funding with your money, putting it at risk in companies, things you don't believe in, and maybe getting lower returns on those investments solely because of what your investors are doing. Uh, ESG investing is a, it's a, it's a blight, honestly, on this country, and it's a genuine threat to your retirement. Steve Moore will join us to talk about that at 1035. And then at 1110, we're going to talk to a local guy, Dr. Ken Polkey, who's got just an interesting story to tell about uh, growing up uh, with an option. Uh, the options were to enter the mafia lifestyle or to pull away from it, because this is what he grew up in, pull away from it and push toward something better. And he ended up uh, achieving a lot better. First of all, I said he's a doctor. Second of all, he has spent some time in the National Football League. He's got a great story to tell about at-risk youth and how they, too, can make the right decisions when faced with choices as young people that might not necessarily be um uh, easy for them to figure out, but he's got some advice. So we're going to talk to uh, Heather McDonald, Dr. Everett Piper, Steve Moore, and Dr. Ken Polkey. He'll be joining us. And actually, I have to ask Ken if it's Polkey or Polk. There's an E on the end, so I'm using it. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a pause now for our Pledge of Allegiance, or rather, let's start our program with that. So, Patriots, go ahead and rise if you are so inclined, wherever you may be. Face your flag. Put your hand on your heart and join us for this pledge. If you are a believer in Joe Biden's mission of of dividing this country rather than unifying it, dividing it particularly among racial lines because that's the best way to bring the country down, well, then clearly you don't support the country nor the flag that represents it. You are exempted from the request to pledge your allegiance to that flag. You may instead take a knee next to that unemployed, washed-up quarterback over there. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Yeah, we're going to start with race today because um, some interesting, first of all, what I just mentioned, what Joe Biden said at Howard University on Saturday is just infuriating. It is divisive. Black people should be appalled. White people should be appalled. We should be a unified country. There is no systemic racism that plagues this country. There used to be. There is not anymore. There is opportunity for all. And the idea that we should continue to use race to divide this country is only supported by people who wish to destroy this country, to literally break it down at its foundational level so they can rebuild it in a collectivist Marxist model that they so desire. That's truth. 
Now, today's episode of this is the announcement that the Reverend Al Sharpton, one of the most reprehensible, repugnant racists in modern American history, has been invited to give the eulogy at the funeral tomorrow for 30-year-old Jordan Neely, who's the black man who was uh, threatening, harassing, menacing passengers on that New York City subway earlier this month before he was taken down and restrained by a former Marine, or rather a Marine veteran and two others. Uh, Daniel Penny took down Jordan Neely from behind and held him in a chokehold, while the other two individuals stopped him from punching at Penny over his head by holding down his arms. One of those men holding down his arms was a black man. And yet, the narrative is, because the narrative must be, this was a racist crime against a black man. That this was a white man named Daniel Penny choking, i.e. lynching, and killing a black man on a New York subway for no apparent reason. So the Reverend Al Sharpton is going to be giving the eulogy. This is going to be really, really unifying, I'm certain. He's been invited to do so by the Reverend Johnny Melvin Green, Jr., senior pastor at the Mount Nebo uh, Baptist Church in Harlem. Quote, as we face sorrow, pain, and uncertainty in the wake of Jordan's senseless killing, it is crucial that we come together in the spirit of healing, action, and perseverance. I can think of no one better, no one more equipped to meet this moment with that grace and guidance than Reverend Sharpton, end quote. Which is simply hilarious. And no, I don't laugh at the death of anybody, obviously, but this show and that's what it's going to be, is a show, um, is is honestly comical. The idea that Al Sharpton will bring people together in a spirit of healing, are you kidding me? We all know what to expect here. We all know what is going to happen here. What people don't know necessarily at this moment in time about the death of, of, of Jordan Neely and about the reaction and the instantaneous calls for protest, which happened, protests and activism against the, another death of a young black man at the hands of a white person, as if that is the standard, as if that's commonality. It, of course, is not standard. It is, of course, not commonality. It is, in fact, a very, 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 I'm going to see how many times I can say very in five seconds, very, 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 very rare occurrence. Black people are not killed by white people on the regular. They are not killed by white people moderately frequently. I'm talking very, 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 very rarely. That's reality. That's what Heather McDonald is going to talk to us about coming up here in just about uh, 12 minutes. The reality is the other way around. But they want you at this moment in time to see this as just being the latest example. And the only way they can make that case is to do what they do. Bury cases of black-on-black violence and bury cases of black-on-white violence and then highlight on the national news and invite Al Sharpton to cases in which a black person dies at the hands of a white person, even if while justified. So let's talk about justification. Let's talk about what should happen here. According to witnesses who were on that train... And we're talking about some of the terrified passengers 
who saw what Daniel Neely was doing and who um, essentially were terrified and all recoiled and, and they all kind of stuffed themselves into the corner of the subway car, trapped, as one witness said, like lemmings in a, in a, sard, in a, in a sardine can, or I guess it would be sardines in a sardine can, but that's, that's the phrasing that was used, trapped with nowhere to go in this tube, terrified that this person was about to start killing people. One witness literally said, and I quote, he's a hero. She is a 60-year-old woman of color, and she said this white man, Daniel Penny, is a hero. She also said it was wrong for overstuffed Alvin Bragg to charge him with second-degree manslaughter. Quoting the witness now, who knows more about this than you or I because we were not there. Quote, it was self-defense, and I believe in my heart that he saved a lot of people that day that could have gotten hurt. End quote. Neely stormed onto the northbound F train at about 2.30 p.m. on May 1st, screaming and threatening passengers. I'm sitting on a train reading my book, and all of a sudden I hear someone spewing this rhetoric. He said, I don't care if I have to kill an F. You can know what the F stands for. I will. I'll go to jail. I'll take a bullet. This is, again, quoting from the 60, uh, the woman who is described as in her 60s and as a woman of color. The terrified passenger, she said, crowded toward the exit doors, quote, I'm looking at where we are in the tube, in the sardine can, and I'm like, okay, we're in between stations. There's nowhere we can go. The people on that train, we were scared. We were scared for our lives. And then Penny stepped in when Neely started using the words kill and bullet. Why in the world would you take a bullet? Why? You don't take a bullet because you've just snatched something from somebody's hand. You take a bullet for violence. The witness said it was very clear that Penny waited until the very last minute to intervene for the sake of his passengers. She heard a thump when he dragged Neely to the ground, but couldn't see clearly until the doors opened at the next station, and most of the passengers had exited. Mr. Penny cared for people. That's what he did. That is his crime, she said. But that's not the story that the media is telling. So we're starting with race, and we're starting with the realities of race. And Heather McDonald is going to join me after the bottom of the hour news. It's 923. We'll take a time out now to prep for that. Always right radio, AM 1420, The Answer. When you wake up in the morning and the light is hurt your head. Summer is for savoring. It arrives suddenly and disappears long before we're ready. And so we seize the day, all of them. We relish our summer traditions, our summer home for music and movies, picnics in the park, sunsets, and celebrations. We come alive under the stars at Blossom. Come Blossom with us. Tickets at Cleveland. It's nobody. Waking America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. 
We are joined now, as promised, by Heather McDonald. She is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's a contributing editor at City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author. Her newest book is a very important one, as are all of her previous books, quite frankly, and it's entitled When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Heather McDonald, thank you so much for the time. How are you this morning? Well, thank you so much for having me on, Bob. I greatly appreciate it. It is our pleasure to have you on. You always, uh, I feel smarter after having talked to you because uh, you have so much knowledge and you do so much great research. Now, the primary agenda, Heather, that I have for this conversation is about violent crime, one of the many subjects of which, uh, of which you are an expert and particularly about what the statistics show about intra and interracial crime. And we'll have plenty to say about that. But let's start with your new book, your newest book, When Race Trumps Merit. Now, we have been watching, and I talk about this on a regular basis on my program, the evolution of that reality in academia and in corporate America for some time now. Admission to universities being decided by appearance rather than by test scores and academic achievement. Hiring practices following the same model. Uh, diversity and equity above all else, including ability or talent or experience. And this commitment to race over merit, Heather, has been expanded now into even medical schools uh, medical school admissions, pilot training, uh, things that now put directly people's lives into the hands of professionals who may or may not be well qualified enough to handle those responsibilities. Heather, how did we get here? Oh, we get there because the academic skills gap and the criminal offending gap has persisted for decades uh, despite massive efforts of our policymakers to close it billions if not trillions of dollars of transfer payments to try to close it and we still see uh vast skills gaps i'll give you a a sense of the scale of those bob and and these are figures that are difficult for americans to hear uh you know we we would rather not look at this head on and and blame ourselves for phantom racism for the lack of racial proportionality in medical schools or science labs or law firms but it's too late for that now. We, we're tearing things down at too fast a rate to go, continue with these fictions. Here's here's some facts. Uh, 66% of black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of basic 12th grade math skills, which are defined as being able to do arithmetic or read a graph. Uh, 7% of black 12th graders are proficient in 12th grade math, which is defined as being able to calculate using ratios. And the proportion of black 12th graders who are advanced in math nationally is too small to show up statistically. And so given those academic skills gaps, you can have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. Any institution that is telling you we are putting a priority on merit, on diversity is telling you that we are going to cancel meritocratic standards because if you, if you enforce colorblind, neutral, constitutional, non-racist meritocratic standards, you will have a negative disparate impact on blacks. And we have decided as a culture that we would rather blame our institutions, we would rather blame colorblind tests for racism than acknowledge the facts that there is a culture in the inner city that is inhibiting black success. So, you know, here's here's the rule. 
if blacks do more poorly on a test, whether it's the SATs, the medical school admissions tests, the GREs, the law school admissions test, we say, okay, it's a racist test, we'll lower the standards, rather than having black leaders say, okay, we're going to, we're going to meet your standards, but instead they always demand that standards be lowered on their behalf. Well, the, everything you just said is extraordinarily important, obviously, but we'll go back to the root of this because you said it for a moment, um, I very briefly talked about, you know, the culture. They don't let, that's a taboo subject to say that, you know, the black family or black culture, less uh, of an importance is placed on education by parents. Sometimes the parents just aren't there, or at least only one parent is there. And that's a taboo subject to, 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 to get into. The easier way to do it is just say, look, um, systemic racism. Schools are systemically racist. The test writers, you know, on these uh, standardized tests are systemically racist. There isn't an opportunity for black families to get their kids in school. All of the different things that we know are responsible for these lower test scores, this 66% that you just mentioned and only 7% can do 12th grade math. They're blaming, they're blaming white society or white supremacist society for this rather than owning what can we do within our own community. And, and isn't the, the extraordinary success of another minority group, Asians in this country, evidence that it really is how things are done in their communities? It certainly is, Bob. I mean, the differences in family culture are enormous. And as long as those differences are so great, it is wildly premature to come up with this phlogiston answer of this, you know, invisible miasma of systemic racism. If the family situations were diff- were the same, if, if, if black students were spending as much time doing homework as Asians, if they were taking their textbooks home, if they were paying attention to their teacher rather than sitting with their backs to the teacher and their headphones in, all of which behavior I have witnessed, uh, if they were not joining gangs, if parents were making sure that they do their homework and study for exams rather than running in the streets and, and, and joining gangs, and we still saw racial disparities in, in institutions, then it's time to go to the phlogiston systemic racism invisible miasma explanation but right now when those differences are so patent it is ridiculous to go looking for these invisible aspects of racism i mean you mentioned the the canard that the standardized colorblind tests are somehow culturally biased that's been a charge that's been rattling around for decades Mm -hmm. if it was ever true which i doubt it is not true now there is no more questions about a regatta you know being on rowing in a stall at eton or something any exam question on standardized tests that has a particularly large skew between blacks and whites is removed. Uh, there are no cultural presuppositions that are relevant to success on these exams. What these exams measure li- validly is, is, uh, academic skill levels. Uh, we are ta- and so it is, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to remind everybody we're talking to Heather McDonald. Her latest book is When Race Trumps Merit, how the Pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty, and threatens lives. And I apologize for the interruption. I just want to 
trickle back to the race, uh, the uh, racially discriminatory admissions policies that have more highly qualified, highly successful, higher GPAs, higher standardized tests, whites and Asians. Uh, it eliminates them, or it, it uh, you know, they, they're declined in their admission to some elite schools. And some will say, look, it's the least we can do, given the status, given the state of things right now, is to allow a few more people of color into these classes. We can accept a little bit of racism against the majority, a little bit of discrimination against the majority, if it, if it balances things out just a little bit. But, Heather, you have spoken and written extensively on some of the unintended victims of such policies, and they are the black students who are given these spots in schools they can't compete in themselves. Right. First of all, let's clear up a popular misconception that was never true, but is really not true today, which is that all racial preferences do is provide a thumb on the scale, that you've got two virtually equally qualified candidates for a college. One is black, one is white or Asian. And so we'll give a preference to the black student as just an effort at diversity. That is not the case. The, the, the skills gaps, that, as measured by standardized objective, colorblind, neutral tests are always at least a standard deviation below. So you have, like, for medical schools, uh, blacks in a certain lower-than-average uh, uh, skill level and GPA level have a nine times greater chance of getting admitted to medical school than Asians and a seven times larger chance of getting admitted to medical school than whites. So these are vast gaps. It's not a little thumb on the scale. But yes, that's jumping up and down on the scale, full bodied. That's what that that's what that indicates. It's jumping up and down on the scale and it is jumping down on our most gifted students and saying we do not want you to succeed. We are going to depress your opportunities to maximize your innate gifts because we're shutting down gifted and talented programs. We're going to hold you back in math acceleration in the hope that if we defer the teaching of algebra or pre-calculus that black and Hispanic students will catch up. They don't. Meanwhile, uh, the most gifted students are cooling their heels. They're not being challenged and they're not being accelerated to be able to take on China, which is pouring everything it's got at its most talented students, not, not uh, determining its education policy on the basis of race and gender. But yes, your question, Bob, is absolutely correct. The, the biggest victims of racial preferences are the bene- so-called beneficiaries themselves mm-hmm. because you are putting somebody at a grotesque, cruel disadvantage by admitting him into an academic environment for which he is not competitively qualified. And let's take this out of the charged issue of race and think about it through the lens of sex. If MIT admitted me uh, to its freshman class and I had a 650 on my math SAT on an 800-point scale, and it was admitting me with lower SATs than my peers in order to have sex parity, whereas all of my non-preferred peers, those who were admitted on the basis of their skills, not on the basis of their sex, were averaging close to 800 on their math SATs, so they were much more advanced in math. I'm going to flounder and struggle enormously in my first-year calculus class because the teaching will be pitched to that of my peers, to the average level of skills, not to me. And I will fall behind. 
I will likely decide, gee, engineering isn't for me. After all, I can't keep up. Whereas had I been admitted to a school where I was at the same level of preparation as my peers, where the average math SAT was 650 and not 800, I would keep up because the, the teaching would be pitched to my level, the average level of skills. Well, that's what happens to black students. They are catapulted into academic environments for which they are not competitively qualified. Nobody's saying they should not go to college. They should go to college on the same basis as everybody else, which is among a group of peers that share their level of academic qualifications. What happens to those black students? They fall behind. They drop out of their STEM intended majors and do black studies or anthropology or gender studies. Uh, and you end up with fewer STEM graduates that are, who are black than you would have had had they been admitted to schools where they were on the same academic footing as their peers. Yeah, they drop out of those majors or they drop out of school altogether. Maybe go back exactly. to a community college or something. So in other words, black students are being used. Underqualified black students are being used by the academic universities uh, that just want to check their boxes and to make sure that their virtue signaling is, is, you know, is on par with others. You know, look at our diversity, our equity and our inclusion. Look at all of the underrepresented groups we have brought in. That's all they care about. They're using these people, um, which is just, uh, abhorrent. Um, last question on this before we talk about crime, Heather McDonald. Um, what about other marginalized groups with this massive explosion of uh, trans identifying people, most of whom are just attention seekers, uh, with a very, very, very small percentage of them actually suffering from actual gender dysphoria? Um, are we going to see quotas, or maybe we already are, yet for those who push gender identity over merit as well as race over merit? Yes, we're seeing it already. Um, you know, the STEM, the science field, science, technology, engineering, medicine have been completely overrun by racial quotas. We are lowering standards across the board. The federal government is now giving science research grants for Alzheimer's and cancer research on the basis of race, not on the basis of scientific achievement. This will uh, slow down our scientific progress enormously. And it is now also saying that uh, so-called, you know, non- cis heteronormative identity should be also the basis of deciding who gets science research labs or who grants or who gets uh, hired in, in engineering departments. Again, there's nothing that is less relevant to the conduct of science uh, than somebody's so-called gender identity or race or sex. Science is about the scientific method. It is not about the scientist. It is supposed to be anyway. Heather McDonald is my guest. Her latest book, When Race Trumps Merit, you need to get this. You need to read and study more specifically what we're kind of generalizing about now. Now let's talk, uh, Heather, about crime. Um, President Biden spoke to the commencement uh, audience at uh, and you know the graduates at uh, an HBCU, historically black college university, uh, Howard University, this past Saturday. And standing before an audience of entirely black people, I mean, I believe, I don't know if there were any other, uh, any other Caucasians in the audience, but it is an HBCU. But he stood there and told an entire black audience that white supremacy is the greatest threat this nation faces. The audience applauded that. So the unifying president, and I'm not trying to get political here, but we have to address this. The president who said, I'm going to bring this country together after it was split apart by the last administration. 
stood there before an all-black audience and told them that white people were their greatest threat, their greatest enemies. Nothing quite as unifying as saying that white people are going to hold you down, they are going to be out to get you, they're going to target you, they're going to be a constant obstacle for black Americans. And the story that that president likes to tell is that black parents have to have the talk with their kids about being targeted by police or by white people. And Heather, you have done incredible work in researching what the statistics tell about that. Are black people and young black kids uh, more likely to be attacked by white people and or police officers? Or is it maybe another another way around? It's an utter fiction. And, you know, I write about this in the book as well. I've got a vast amount of crime data in, in the book. Uh, and we're unwinding the criminal justice system because it has a disparate impact on black criminals. I was, I was just stunned when conservatives bought into this idea that Biden was unifying that, oh, they, they loved his inaugural speech. You know, you had people at the Wall Street Journal, Bill McGurn at the Wall Street Journal saying, oh, this is so unifying. Ben Shapiro, mocking the speech for being so unifying. He was bashing whites in the speech and doing his usual theme about white supremacy being the biggest stain on this country's soul that we have not moved behind. Whites are so self-canceling at this point that they don't even hear the calumny against them. Here's the reality about interracial violence. When you look at all interracial, non-lethal interracial violence between blacks and whites and whites and blacks, Blacks commit 87% of it. So it is blacks who are a threat to whites, not whites who are a threat to blacks. Since the George Floyd race riots in the first 18 months after the George Floyd race riots and the, the, the left-wing uh, medical establishment says it's after the pandemic. No, the pandemic was not what gave us our huge, huge homicide surge in 2020. It was the depolicing that was created by the calumny against the, the police by Biden and, and the rest of the Democratic media establishment. Uh, black juveniles in, in four representative cities are killed of gun homicide at 100 times the rate of whites. We have heard of none of those black juveniles because they are all killed by blacks. If they had been called killed by whites, Every single one of those crimes would have been the leading story in CNN. Blacks are killing each other at astronomically higher rates. And when it comes to interracial violence, uh, the balance is just the opposite of what Biden says. You know, um, the media plays such an outsized role in this, in this narrative that, you know, blacks are being hunted, that black parents have to have the talk with their kids and white parents don't and so forth. And you wrote about that in one of your latest articles that I read in the City Journal. Tell us a little bit about the difference in media presentation and also political um reaction to the cases of Ralph Yarl in Kansas City and a 20-year-old white student um, who just two days apart suffered almost identical situations, except for one was fatal and the other one wasn't, and the way the media presented those. Yeah, so Ralph Yarl was the 16-year-old who went to the wrong house in a residential neighborhood in Kansas City and, and knocked on the door uh, or rang the bell, doorbell. According to the 84-year-old man who lived in that house, Jarl also pulled at the outside storm door. Uh, the, the, rep, the lawyer for Jarl says that's not true, so this is a, you know, something that's up in dispute. The homeowner 
uh, who lives by himself, was terrified. This was at 10 p.m. He'd already gone to bed. Shot at Jarl through the door, hit him in the head. Uh, fortunately, Jarl survived. He's been released from the hospital. It looks like he will be okay. Uh, but this was immediately seized upon as what the mayor of Kansas City called the dangers of existing while black, that if you exist while black, you are going to be blown away by whites. Uh, and so every every news article about this incident led with Jarl being black and the homeowner, Lester, being white. That, that was, you, you didn't get one sentence into the story before you learned those facts. Well, a couple days later, uh, there was a similar incident of somebody going to the wrong house, uh, and it was a group of young people who had driven up a driveway, uh, and in upstate New York, mm-hmm. and the homeowner came out, and, and I think they may have also gone to the house, and started shooting, and in this case killed uh, a girl in the car. Well, we never passenger. heard a passenger, right. We never heard about the race of her because she was white. She was killed by a white person. Uh, and so, therefore, none of the articles mentioned that. Uh, it's only relevant. Here's a clue. Here's, here's a, a rule of thumb for criminal press reporting. If... The, if the race of the criminal is not mentioned, it's because he's black. If, if the race of the criminal is white, it will be mentioned. And the only time that, you know, you are going to hear about interracial violence is if it is uh, white on black. The vast majority, as I say, of interracial violence is white on black, black on white, rather, but we will never hear about that. Yeah, I think everybody listening to us right now, we're talking with Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute, writing for the City Journal, best-selling author. Her latest book you need to get is uh, When Race Trumps Merit. We're joined now, as promised, by Heather McDonald. She- Well, that one didn't uh, finish out very well there. We're trying to uh, finish the interview with uh, with Heather McDonald. Um, we're going to try to bring this back up again. We conducted this interview uh, yesterday evening due to Heather's schedule, so we're going to see if we can pick this right back up where it was. You know, the, the, so this fatal, fatal shooting is because somebody didn't have a barbecue, and these flash mobs that recur every year at at Chicago. Everybody went nuts about this one, forgetting that last year there was somebody, a boy who was actually killed uh, in Millennial Park, Millennium Park in Chicago during one of these rampages. Uh, the um, They all organize these flash mobs on smartphones. So these kids all have smartphones. That is not my definition of deprived of opportunity. <laughs> That's very well said. A state senator in Illinois, actually, I think his name is Peters, actually said that this was a, you were talking about the Chicago teen takeover. That's what it was a few weeks ago. And you're right, it was planned out on their smartphones. And he actually said that this was a general protest. There wasn't any particular death or situation that happened. It's a general protest against their poverty and segregation. And then Brandon... And then Brandon Johnson, the uh, new mayor, uh, did indeed say he was mayor-elect at the time, but he, yeah. he literally did say it is not constructive to demonize the youth. Right, exactly. No, it is constructive. We have to start reasserting 
that the law-abiding should be the focus of policy, not the criminal. Everything now is upside down. It is. Government cares about the rights of the criminal, the dysfunctional, the antisocial. Taxpayers, the people who work, are simply viewed as a money spigot for the services and the redistribution of wealth that goes to the criminals. And, and we're just supposed to be silent, take it, you know, get assaulted by, by, by mentally ill vagrants who should never have been allowed to stay on the street in the first place, put up with it, take it. Uh, and if anybody steps up like Penny in the, the Marine veteran in mm-hmm. New York to try and protect his fellow passengers, uh, he will be demonized. But he's there because the government has failed in its primary mission of of preserving life and property and safety. That is exactly right. And, Heather, we'll wrap it with this by going back to the statistics just for a moment. So I don't want anybody to come away from this conversation thinking that we're saying that more white people are killed by blacks than whites. That's not the case. Intra-racial crime, some 95% of black homicide victims are killed by other blacks, and some 85% or so of whites who are killed in homicides are killed by whites. But when we cross over the two, and it's either white on black or black on white, those are the statistics that matter here, and that whites are overwhelmingly targeted and are victims of violent crime by blacks than the other way around. And I just, I know that's the research you did, and that's what you write about, and that's what I want people to take away from this. Exactly, and notice those disparities. You know, if 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 ninety five percent of of blacks are killed by other blacks, but eighty five percent of whites are killed by whites, where's that 10% disparity coming from? And that's because of the vast disparities in who's committing interracial violence. There it is. Yeah, there it is. And that's uh, that's something Joe Biden will never acknowledge in one of his speeches or one of his stain on the soul of our nation uh, commentaries. Heather McDonald, uh, the latest book, When Race Trumps Merit, subtitled How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and threatens live, and it certainly does all of those things. Heather, thank you for what you do, and thank you for making time for us. We certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much, Bob. It's always a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. All right, so that conversation I recorded uh, last night with uh, with uh, Heather McDonald uh, with an eye on giving that to you today because it's so important, as I said, with the Jordan Neely story uh, and the Biden uh, remarks about being white supremacy being the greatest threat uh, to this country uh, and, uh, and an audience of, of exclusive black audience, an exclusively black audience applauding that. It's so divisive, and it's so incorrect. It's so inaccurate. It just needed to be um, exposed like that. So apologies for the glitch in the middle of that or toward the end of that interview. But if you missed it, um, I'll post the interview in its entirety separate from today's podcast. We'll post the interview itself separate from today's podcast. Uh, It'll be available about an hour after the show at whkradio.com. So if you missed any part of that, particularly the Jordan Neely discussion, uh, part of the discussion, And I couldn't tell quite exactly which part got cut out, but uh, we'll have that for you available. Coming up on Top of the Hour News now, we're going to get into the culture wars once again with Dr. Everett Piper, who will join us on AM 1420, The Answer. I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz. 
1420. The answer. All right, hour number two is underway now at 10 minutes after 10 o'clock. As promised, it is a Thursday, the 18th morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord, 2023. Thank you again to Heather McDonald for the uh, tremendous insight and information. She researches like no other. Every claim she makes is factually backed up. And if you don't believe that, read her at cityjournal.com as well. All right, uh... Time to uh, wade once again into another battle in the culture wars, and uh, I am following the lead of this man. Uh, Dr. Everett Piper is with us once again. Dr. Piper is a best-selling author. He is a weekly columnist, now Times 2. I'll explain that in a moment, uh, with the Washington Times. He is also a podcast radio host of The Rebellion. He's a former university president, and he also happens to be a uh, um, county commissioner in Oklahoma. Dr. Everett Piper, good morning. Good to have you back. Always good to be on, Bob. Thanks. So you don't have enough to do between you know county commissioning and writing and uh, uh, and uh, uh, radio podcasting and writing one column. Now they have to throw another one your way. I see, huh? Well, I failed retirement. <laughs> <laughs> You're working harder now than you probably ever did before. Just in a lot uh, of maybe different so. places. Yeah, just in a lot of different places, a lot of different spaces. Any new books in the work while you're doing all this? I don't have any new books right now. That's uh, I don't. Uh, it, it, but anyway, yeah, the Washington Times asked me to start another column. I'm going to continue to write the weekend column that you and I discuss on your show basically mm-hmm. every week. Mm-hmm. But they asked me to start um, for the older folks that are listening right now. They're all, they'll understand the Dear Abby or Ann Landers type column. It's a Q and A where the readers of the Washington Times will just fire off whatever questions they have, and I'll try to respond to those on a weekly basis. So the first edition of the Ask Dr. E um, column for the Washington Times was featured this week on Wednesday. And we're going to talk about that. I love that idea, by the way. Uh, I also love the idea of getting you uh, back to work on another book. We've got to talk about what we, you and I talk about all the time and you know, on a routine hey, basis. Hey, hey the, my offer still stands. You and I will co-author a book titled That'll Never Happen. That'll okay. Never Happen. <laughs> you nailed it. That's exactly where I was going with it. Dr. Parker, let's talk about the first column, though, first this week, your weekly, uh, about censorship. And you highlighted a situation at Northwestern University, uh, and, and you've asked a very interesting question, particularly as you promoted your column with your tweet uh, about um, uh, the ivory tower quickly devolving into the Tower of Babel. Can you tell us what uh, what we're talking about? Well, Northwestern University, arguably one of our nation's premier institutions, mm-hmm. uh, very elite institution, very selective in its enrollment, um, their student government just decided to censor and cancel uh, another conservative speaker. And the way they did that is they're going to defund the conservative Republican student organization on campus because they dared to have James Lindsay appear and speak against critical race theory. So James Lindsay, as we all know, I'm sure you've covered him on your show, has been an outspoken opponent of the craziness of CRT, critical theory, and he explains why. He's very intelligent and very well informed. Well, Northwestern uh, students, the left anyway, the student government, is offended by that because he brings conservative ideas to their campus. And the way to solve that problem, rather than debating those ideas and having a good robust exchange of ideas and maybe a good argument that's controlled and civil, the way they think you should respond to these ideas that you don't like is just cancel them. Defund the organization that dares to bring such speakers to the academy. Well, this is just nonsense, Bob. It's antithetical to a liberal arts 
education. A liberal arts education is supposed to be an education in liberty, where you kick around various different ideas, not because they're all equal, and not because you believe in moral neutrality or intellectual nihilism. No, you believe some ideas are good and some ideas... Uh-oh. ...ones will surface as being true, and the bad ones will be judged by history, reason, experience, and even scripture as being false. And the irony here, Bob, is Northwestern University still carries on its shield, its official motto is whatever things are true. That's a quote from Philippians 4.8. This is true across the academy. Most institutions across the nation, Harvard, Dartmouth, Princeton, Yale, uh, University of Cal, Berkeley, all of them were founded in a biblical worldview, a Judeo-Christian ethic, where they quoted the Bible in their mission statements. Northwestern still does, but yet they're going to shut down an unpopular idea from James Lindsay because it's too conservative, and it threatens our precious little snowflakes. And the way that these snowflakes solve the problem is to just throw a temper tantrum and pout and say, we don't want to hear it. They plug their ears and they go, no, 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 they don't want to hear it. And that is now the quintessential example of the ivory tower. That isn't the ivory tower. That's the Tower of Babel, and it's very sad. Well, apparently the uh, people at Northwestern, both students and administrators, uh, do not understand that college and university is not supposed to be a daycare. They didn't read your book uh, because that's exactly what you're describing. They throw, they're throwing their little stompy foot tantrum because they don't want to have to hear this person. And, Dr. Piper, what's so frustrating about it is they try to censor truth. Um, and, and I love the reference to Philippians, by the way, well, whatsoever things are true. And you close with... Um, you know, censoring speakers like James Lindsay simply because he uh, dared to hurt their feelings by telling them what was true. What's really aggravating about this is, you know, they, they the reason that they do it, because they can't defeat the arguments made by the speaker. If they could, they would say, let him talk, and then we'll tell him and everybody else exactly why he's wrong. They can't do it. They know they cannot defeat the argument on its merits, so therefore they have to make sure nobody can hear the the argument. They can't hear the point of view. And that's what's so frustrating is their own um, disbelief in their own ability to to defend their points of view. If they can't defeat somebody else's, then we just have to make sure nobody hears what what somebody else has to say. And shame on parents and shame on professors for letting this happen. I mean, no good parent raises their child to just scream louder when they want their own way. You teach your child that if you want to be an adult, you engage in conversation debate, and you control yourself, and you present a better argument. And if you've got a better argument, I, I as your dad, might give in. I might say, okay, you got me on that one. Um, I'll let you go buy X or Y or Z. I'll let you go out uh, later at night rather than come in, in, in your curfew when you were younger because you've proven to me through the course of debate and a good argument, an adult exchange of ideas, that you are an adult now. You're not a child any longer. But these professors continue to coddle these kids as if they're eight-year-olds. And what do we get? We get a perpetual adolescence in our culture. We get a bunch of juveniles that never grow up. And again, I'm, co- I'm covering that in my second book. I mean, if you treat kids, um, 14, 15, 16, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, as if they're children, and you want to make them safe, you coddle them, you give them participation trophies, you don't want them to feel uncomfortable, shame on that nasty professor for challenging you, um, shame on that coach for making you work harder. When you helicopter parent your kids, 
in perpetuity, what are you going to get? You're going to get a culture and a nation of adolescents that have never grown up because they think life is supposed to be all about safety and security and comfort. They don't want to be challenged, and that's exactly where we are at Northwestern, across the nation, in the academy. The ivory tower is nothing but a daycare, and we're reaping the consequences of this. we got a culture... Heaven forbid that we had to go to war, because we've got a bunch of kids that want to be comfortable in war rather than confront the enemy. That's that's exactly correct. And, and Dr. Piper, last thing on this, and it may seem minor, but I'm just kind of curious. Um, I didn't know that the college specifically funded college clubs, like the Republican Club or, or, or whatever they called it, you know, the organization that they defunded here that brought James Lindsay to campus. Are they doing that with, with taxpayer dollars? Is that is that the... Um, is that, is that the way that goes? Because if it is, and they're disproportionately then giving funds to one particular ideological group or, or uh, party uh, club, like a you know Democrat club on campus, but they deny those funds to a Republican, I have to believe that's actionable. Um, it, it depends on how they're structuring their financial aid. Um, every college and university probably has student activity fees that you have to pay. Uh, when I was a Ph.D. student at Michigan State University, I was older I wasn't availing myself of any of the campus activities, and I protested. I tried to get out of paying the student activity fees, and they wouldn't let me. They said, no, it's required of every student. So I had to pay, if I remember correctly, like 800 900 bucks a semester in activity fees. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. gee, this is ridiculous. Yeah. But I had to. They required it. Now, the question is, can I use a, a guaranteed student loan? Can I use a Pell Grant? Can I use my state financial aid to cover that activity fee. If the, stu- if the college permits you to use financial aid to pay for those fees, if you've got enough financial aid to do so, then yes, taxpayer dollars are in play. And now the student government defunding an organization simply because they don't like what it says. And there's a free speech issue here, too. I'll guarantee you that this ruling at Northwestern will go down. It'll be overturned because it's unconstitutional. Somebody like FIRE... Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, will rally around this particular student group. They'll represent them in court, and they'll win because it's a violation of free speech. This organization can't do this. That's what I wanted to hear, exactly what recourse they have, because that is ridiculous. They've actually said, you know, free speech says we can't ban the speaker, but we can defund the organization that brought the speaker. Huh? What? I mean, it's it's the same practical effect. All right, uh, Dr. Piper, we'll take our time out here, and then we're going to come back and talk about Asking Dr. E, Dr. Everett Piper, uh, his second column now, his new, uh, new, new uh, venture and project for the Washington Times. He's got some interesting things to say there in week one. We'll talk about that next day on 1420 The Answer. Okay, 1024, I've got uh, enough time maybe to get both of these last two subjects in. We're going to talk about Dr. Everett Piper's new column, his new advice column, if you will, and also uh, about a new PragerU project uh, that has a personal connection to Dr. Piper. I watched it this morning. It's terrific. Uh, But, Dr. Piper, let's go into Ask Dr. E. Dear Dr. E, uh, don't you think the single-issue tendency of Christians is untenable? 
There are more issues than just abortion. What about the innocent civilians killed due to war and other injustices across the globe? Surely Jesus cares about these people, too. Signed, Disaffected Neighbor in Oklahoma. This was your first question that you addressed in your first new column of uh, Ask Dr. E. Uh, Dr. E, give us a summary response. I'll be brief. Um, the Whenever we're asked questions, I think we just need to take a deep breath before we respond. Uh, and... Just think of the context and whether or not the question is logical or self-refuting. And I would argue that this question in and of itself exposes the error in this person's thinking. They're arguing that if you are opposed to killing babies, that you're a single-issue voter because you should be concerned about what? Killing other people. So the assumption here is that killing people is wrong. Okay, so you know when I answer this question, and I'm paraphrasing right now, I respond by saying, aren't you assuming that human life has value and that deaths as the result of war are wrong? And if you're a pacifist, great. As long as you're consistent, you can be a pacifist. We could debate that otherwise. But the assumption here is that you think killing human beings is wrong. So by default, you're admitting that killing babies is wrong. So I've got a question for you, disaffected. Why is it single-issue voting to attend to the millions upon millions upon millions of babies that are being executed as the result of Planned Parenthood and choice, but yet it's, uh, you know, that, that's a single issue, but yet you're going to elevate a lesser number of people that are killed as the result of war. So you're, you're bemoaning the fact that, let's say, 10,000 people die at the hands of war in Ukraine or elsewhere, and that conservatives should be worried about that just as much as all these babies that are being killed at the hands of Planned Parenthood and the scalpel. The bottom line here is, if you believe in human dignity and human life and that it has value, shouldn't you attend to both? Both. And you're being presumptuous to assume that conservatives don't care about both. But if you do care about both, maybe you want to attend to the greatest number of deaths as the result of a given event. And it is indisputable that millions of more young children are being executed at Planned Parenthood than in the Ukraine or any other war that's taking place right now. So be consistent. And don't tell me I'm being single issue just because I'm attending to these millions of children. And yes, I do care about those human beings that are being killed in torture and persecution of the church across the world as well as war in the Ukraine and elsewhere. Yeah, and and that's it's a, it's a great way to analyze the question, and I like that to put them, uh, you know, put their own put their own uh, biases in mind when they even ask the question because they are trying to obviously goad you into a certain type of answer, and I think that's great. Now, as we talk about victims of things like abortion and wars, let's pivot now to this Prager University video that you turned me on to, which talks about the victims in the communities on the southern border. Oops, hold on one second here, Doctor Piper. Here we go. Anybody coming onto our property and knocking on our door in the middle of the night or surrounding the house and looking in my daughter's window in the middle of the day, you know. I've had them come to my doors, knock on my windows. It might be one, it might be two. And one particular night I had probably about 15 surround my house, banging on my windows and banging on my door. I've got on camera where they have literally the, the drugs are being transported with Guys holding pistols, guys holding ARs. These are the realities that some of our um, some of our neighbors to the south uh, and on our southern border in communities like El Paso deal with. And uh, this is a very, very important Prager Uni- University video for that reason alone, but it's more personal to you, and tell us why. 
Well, first of all, I think everybody needs to remember you sit in for Prager periodically when he's out, and Next good week. for you because you're both you're both part of the Salem team. And um, people don't realize what quality they've gotten you uh, up there in Cleveland. Um, well, maybe they do, but good for you. Well, that's well, very kind you, of you. You're connected with my son because my son now works. Kobe, Kobe Piper now works for Prager University, and he's one of the editors, producers, whatever his title is. He's the man behind the curtain, if you will, in the production of these mini documentaries, one of which you just played. And it exposes the lack of humanity, the lack of care, the lack of concern for our fellow human beings by having open borders. And uh, one of the, there were two young men, as you know, there's CJ and Aldo are the two PragerU characters or personalities that are down there on the border right now exposing this nonsense and how crazy it is to just open your borders up and have what? You have women that are being raped, you have children that are being trafficked, trafficked, excuse me, and you have a lot of dead bodies in the desert on our side of the border down there right now. If you watch this video, you actually see that there are containers, shipping containers, out along the um, the countryside that uh, uh, immigration services, the the um, whatever the I, I can't remember the agency down there, they're actually collecting bodies, dead bodies, and putting them in refrigerated units until they can put them in paupers' graves. I mean, that's how bad it is right now. But yet the left wants to pretend that. We're the ones that don't care about human beings, and they do, but yet they're aiding and abetting in this atrocity. It is exactly that, and congratulations to your son. He's obviously working for a very important organization. Long before I started guest hosting the Dennis Prager Show, I said on this program that uh, PragerU is the best thing on the Internet, and I meant it because it is so incredible. Uh, incredibly wide-reaching. I mean, it's 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 understandable and articulated for kids. Uh, the animation kind of makes it a little bit more entertaining as well, but it covers enough depth uh, that adults will get a lot of value of it as well. I love PragerU. I'm glad your son's a part of it. And yes, this uh, very first project of his is an important one, shining a spotlight on the victims down there uh, of our of our wide open border policies. Dr. Everett Piper, great stuff today as always. Dr. Piper, thank you for your for your great work. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, blessings. Take care. 1031 now. We're going to take a time out. We're going to come back. I told you we're loaded up today, and we are. Steve Moore, former advisor to President Trump, economic advisor, is going to talk to us about ESG. We're going to talk about uh, uh, the wasting or the threatening of our tax dollars by investing in companies based on their woke policies. Steve Moore joins us next. This is AM 1420, The Answer, WHK, W273DG, Cleveland, a service of... Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, it's 1033. We're jumping right back into it now. Uh, time is a factor for us here. Investment management companies have trillions of dollars of Americans' lifetime savings under their management. These companies, uh, which own roughly 75% of the shares of America's publicly traded corporations, have a legal obligation to earn the highest return possible for the tens of millions of retirees and other American savers who are their clients. That's the first paragraph of an executive summary that has been done on ESG, which stands for Environmental and Social Social Governance. And these are left-wing organizations and companies that are investing your dollars, not in places where they're likely to get the highest return, but they're investing them in places 
where they will serve the greatest good for social justice warriors. That's what uh, Steve Moore has been studying. Steve Moore is, of course, a former uh, advisor to President Donald Trump's uh, 2016 campaign. He is the co-founder and president of Club for Growth, and he joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Steve, good morning. Hey, Bob, good to be with you. And, yeah, this has been a blockbuster study. It's really getting a lot of attention. And investors are so angry about this as well they should be. And I'm just going to give you the headline on this because it's the most important things. And, and then we, we, if you want to, we can get into some of the details. But here are the firms that are worst on ESG that are put, basically putting politics ahead of your pension and ahead of your retirement income. And, and basically, they, these are firms that are violating their fiduciary duty to you to get the highest you know, return on your investments. And so the, the, the ones that do the best, that don't play this ESG game, are uh, Fidelity, and Vanguard and Dimensional. So those are three really good funds. And if you've got your money, you know, invested there, they're doing a good job with it. The wor- Ready for the worst? Yes. Okay. The worst are UBS, um, State Street. Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember. Northern Trust is terrible. Uh, Deutsche Bank is terrible. That we had 12 of the 40 largest companies to get an F minus that are just playing this. And ESG means what they're doing is they're voting for all this like climate change stuff, you know, racial justice, blah, 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 BLM stuff. And then, uh, you know, that reduces the return on your money. And if you're like me and, you know, I put my money in a, in an investment firm because I want to get the best return so I can retire with a, you know, maybe buy another a retirement home or live comfortably when I retire. I don't want them playing politics with my money. Well, and you know, the frustrating thing, Steve, is you know what you're doing. You understand a lot of this. Most people are not economists. Most people don't understand investing. They don't know where the uh, the best returns are going to come from, and they hire somebody, and they pay them a percentage of their gains to figure this out for them. And so uh, most people don't know who they're hiring and what they're doing with their money. Exactly. And that's that's the terrifying part about this. Well, How can know, an average investor is, yeah. know? Well, really good point. And one of the things I find, let me put, say something. Look, if if you want to, if let's say you believe climate change is the end of the world and you want to make sure that you're not investing in oil companies, whatever it is, it's a free country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do whatever you want with your money. So there, there are firms out there that have what they call ESG funds, where they invest in, you know, clean energy. I've got quotes on my, you know, clean energy, and they, they've got all the, you know, woke stuff. And right. if you want to invest in those, they're fine. These, I'm not talking about those funds. These are funds where the companies are investing in the ESG crap without your knowledge or consent. And by the way, you're the one who owns these companies. It's your money. So this is called proxy voting by these firms, and they're voting your money for all these crazy left-wing political gimmicks. And the evidence is very clear that ESG underperforms the market. So they're costing you money. So if you got your money with UBS or Deutsche Bank or State Street, even BlackRock, they're not giving you the best return you can get. So what does a, what does an average American, and I won't even call us all investors, because people don't realize, yeah, you've got a 401k, you've got an IRA, you, you are an investor, yeah. it's, you, you just think of it investor, as your retirement yeah. account, but how can an right. average future retiree um, find out whether or not they are, they are, their, their funds are being invested in these yeah. types of companies? So that's why we did this report. So I want people to go to the, our website, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, mm-hmm. uh, that's Committee to Unleash Prosperity, www.ca, and then... You'll see the report, and we list the 40 largest 
uh, investment firms. By the way, we have over 100 listed. Uh, so if you even have a smaller investment firm, it's probably listed. We, we examined. It took us a lot of work. We examined how they're voting on these secret, you know, um, uh, proxy votes. And you'll be able to see we grade them from A to F. And you and to F minus because some are so bad they voted for all of this stuff. And that is an outrage because it's costing you money. And so if you're conservative, you don't want it because you don't want your money going to all these liberal causes. Right. If you're just an investor who doesn't care about politics but just wants a good return, that's me. You know, well, I'm conservative, but I also just want to get the best return. Uh, you know, look, I don't want my money investor out there trying to save the whales or save the world or change the climate. I just want them to get a good return on my investment. So considering that is their fiduciary responsibility to all of their clients, and they may not be yeah, doing yeah. this, are, are their actions underway? I mean, it sounds like, to me, there ought to be a massive class action suit uh, against these companies and against these investment firms for not putting their money where it's uh, going to be the most beneficial to the client. Well, that's a good point. And some, you know, maybe somebody will bring a lawsuit. But you know what? i got to tell you, just since this report came out, I know that tens of thousands of people are moving their money out of these you know, woke uh, investment firms, and uh, we're getting calls from the investment firms now saying, uh, you know, call out the dogs. And I said, well, stop doing this. So I think we're going to change behavior. So what can an individual do? An individual, you're making a statement. You're voting with your money against these guys, and they pay attention. If we can get enough people to move their money out of BlackRock, out of State Street, out of these really terrible woke companies, you know what? They'll change their behavior. And that's if you want to, if you want to cause change, then do it. Move your money around. Move it away from the, the woke people, the liberal firms. Steve, what, give me that website again where people can check. It's Committee to Unleash Prosperity. That's a group that's headed by myself and Art Laffer and Steve Forbes. So we're you know free market guys. We want every American to get the best. Ret- we want a shared prosperity for everybody. Uh, you know, most Americans have, uh, you know, on average about a hundred thousand dollars in retirement. Some people have a million. I hope you do. If you do, you know, do you really want a lower return? You know, my wife and I are, we're, I'm getting up there in age. You know, we're starting to thinking about, you know, maybe could, we could afford a retirement home in Florida. Well, not if they're playing politics with my money. Yeah, exactly right. And and I do have the website up now, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Prosperity. I want people to go to that too. So so I've got an IRA. I'm just a, I'm just a regular middle class schmo, yeah. and I've yeah. got an IRA. I don't know what I own. I don't know what my my, my yeah. financial planner is doing either. here. So this is this yeah. is basically go to this website, look at the you know the the companies that are the most egregious uh, in spending your money or investing your money into these left wing causes that you may not support right. that are not necessarily the best returns for those investments and go to your individual broker or your financial planner and say am i do i own any of these right that's what you do and tell and instruct them to get out of those or if your broker i gotta jump in a minute but if your Mm -hmm. broker is you know somebody at uh like blackrock or state street just call up your broker say hey you know what i'm out of here i'm moving my money out because of what you're doing and that'll get their attention. I guarantee it. The first thing they're going to do is tell the corporate people, "Hey, we got all these accounts that are moving out. We better change our, you know, ESG policies." So, I'm saying this is a way for every individual American to make a difference because it doesn't take a lot of people to start complaining before the corporate people say, "Whoops, we got a big problem here." Well, look at Bud Light as an example. It didn't take exactly. too many people, right? This is like uh, it, Bud Light. Exactly. It worked, <laughs> exactly. and, 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 and we you have to have it. the same results. Steve Moore, thank you right. so much for the time. We appreciate Take what care. you're doing. You got it.
All right, that's Steve Moore. We had to get him in quickly. He's on a very tight schedule, and I'm looking at it right now. I highly recommend this, CommitteeToUnleashProsperity.com. I'll tweet this. If you follow me on Twitter, um, I'm at uh, France Rants, F-R-A-N-T-Z-R-A-N-T-Z, France Rants on Twitter, and um, uh, I'll try to put this there to make it easier for you to find, because that's a mouthful, CommitteeToUnleashProsperity.com. You can also try it that way, too, but, uh, but take a look. Uh, ESG is not getting enough attention. And this uh, committee, by the way, is Steve Forbes, Arthur Laffer, Steve Moore, and Phil Kirpin. These are some of the very best of the best, and uh, they've got some very good advice here for both reasons. One, you want to maximize the return on your investments, and two, you don't want your your retirement funds being invested to help prop up left-wing social justice companies that do not stand for the values you stand for. It's just, uh, it's it's impossible to think that they're doing this, but they are. And only we can stop it ourselves. 1043, time out, right back. Always Right Radio. So it's a, it's a legitimate question. Do you know where your retirement funds are invested? I can't do a retirement show. I'm not a broker. I'm not a financial planner. I'm not an expert. As a matter of fact, I'm a novice when it comes to that stuff. I, like most people, find myself, you know, at the at the mercy of the person that I do have, you know, handling my my IRA for me. Um, you probably are too. It's complex. I don't have any I don't have any words of wisdom to offer here other than to ask you are you like me? Do you know what your investments are in? Do you know whether or not your money is being invested um in ESG investing? I I I can't I can't make it any simpler than that. And I would love for you to tell me at 216-901-0945. I've got a few minutes here and 888-281-1110. I can't make it more simple than that. Environment, social, and governance investing is putting your dollars, this involves your brokerages or your financial planners, putting your dollars into companies that they like because of their social justice or their environmental or their woke policies. Even if those dollars are going into a place that will not maximize your returns, you want to retire in a, in a positive way, you want to retire in comfort. You want to retire, uh, you know, living the life that you should. Or do you want to struggle in your retirement because they wasted your money putting it into companies that weren't going to give you great investment returns because they wanted those funds to support woke causes? <clears throat> That's what we were just talking with Steve Moore all about. And being a non-expert in this area, I mean, I'm a student of history. I'm a student of a lot of things. I everybody has strengths and weaknesses. This is one of my weaknesses. I am at the mercy of the people that I have investing for me, and you might be too. So what I want to know from you is how are you going to handle that? Do you know what you own in your portfolio of investments, whether it be your 401K or whether it be your IRA or whatever other investment apparatus you may use? ESG investing is a disingenuous response by the left to its own failure to enact their unpopular social policies, like race-based hiring. If your money is being invested in companies 
that practice D.I.E., diversity, inclusion, and equity, which is race-based, which is discriminatory, and you don't want your money to be there, then you better start thinking about asking your broker, where's my money? And is it involved in this? And ask for a list of the companies. Ask for a list of the, uh, uh, the, the stocks that you own. And, and find out whether or not they're practicing that. And then say, no, not anymore. You get me out of that. You sell my shares in that, and you put it in companies that are going to get me the highest investment, and not this woke crap. That's what we do. Having failed, and I'm looking directly at the report and the huge study that was done that Steve Moore just told us about, having failed through the open political process to directly impose mandates on businesses, the tactic now is to try to foist its ideas on companies through the opaque process known as proxy voting. Steve Moore mentioned that. That leverages the money of others to interfere with corporate governance. ESG investing has swept through the investment world. The process involves pension funds, endowments and investment firms some of which have trillions of dollars of uh, under their own management wielding their influence at the shareholder meetings to support left-wing measures related to sex race ethnicity the environment and of course political activity these large firms exercise this influence through what's known as proxy voting in which the aforementioned entities vote for the, vote the shares of their clients on proposals advanced primarily by leftist activist groups. That is frightening. So do you know what you own? If you have a, if you have an IRA or if you have, uh, you know, a pension fund, do you know where it is? While a vote of shareholders might sound like a fair approach, it is not everyday democracy. The vast majority of proxy votes are cast on behalf of shareholders, shareholders by fund managers and are not based on a survey of their clients' wishes. And it, it also points out that left-leaning groups have become much more aggressive in uh, recent years in these shareholder meetings, and they're filing more resolutions, pursuing more audacious objectives. They hide their extreme positions between or behind uh, anodyne terms such as diversity and racial equity and climate justice, when the reality is they're pushing leftist politics, which, of course, kind of goes hand-in-hand. Hand. It's not as if those are exclusive from one another. But they, they're getting a huge amount of support. So what they did here on this huge study that Steve Moore and I were just talking about, they reviewed hundreds of the shareholder uh, resolutions, and they picked 50 of the most extreme ESG-oriented shareholder proposals from last year, from 2022. They called them the fiduciary free 50. And, and understand that language, that fiduciary responsibilities of these companies to maximize your investments are 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 bound by law. You understand that? By law, they have a fiduciary responsibility to get you the best return on your investment. Your pension dollars or retirement dollars can't go into something that's going to get you a 2% return if something next to it is going to get you a 4% return. And I'm just throwing numbers out of, you know, pulling numbers out of the air there. They can't just say, yeah, but we're going to invest in the company that's only going to give you a 2% return because they need your money and they are woke and they are advancing left-wing policies and they're promoting left-wing candidates and they're imposing DEI or DIE requirements on their, on their employees. Cause that's, I mean, that's about the best model I guess I can describe or the most simplistic model that I can give you. If one company is going to give you X percent, and it's a woke company, and that's who they put your money into, 
that's who your broker or your investment manager or your financial planner, whatever it is you want to call them, if that's where they put your money into, is some is a company that gives you X return on your investment and they're woke, instead of Y return on your investment, which is double, just for exa- an example here, double uh, the return as uh, what you would get from X, but they don't want to put your money there, then I feel like there's a massive, massive uh, legal uh, problem that they are asking for. And something we ought to be thinking about. If you if you make the if you follow the proper steps, and this, this is all given to you here, the advice and you know to let you know how to find where your your money is and then what to do about it. If you request, in fact, demand of your broker that they uh, take your money out of companies that are that are not necessarily aligned with your values, and you want the best possible return for your company, uh, or excuse me, for your investment, and you want companies like that. And they don't do it. I think there's going to have to be there's going to have to be a legal action that's taken. But you have to make the steps. You have to follow follow the rules and and do what needs to be done. But the list is right here: the 40 most active voters on 50 extreme shareholder proposals, ranked from best to worst. I'm looking at it. It's on page four of this very important study. And then in the uh, uh, on page five, it gets into the F minus grades that went to six firms supporting more than ninety percent of ESG focused shareholder resolutions. Steve just told you about those Deutsche Bank, Swiss Canto, Northern Trust, and so forth. All of this is available at the website committee to unleash prosperity dot com. Committee to unleash prosperity dot com. I cannot uh, recommend that strongly enough. All right, we're going to take a time out here at the top of the hour. <clears throat> on the other side, we're going to pivot a little bit. We're going to tell a local story. We're going to tell a story uh, uh, of uh, inspiration and uh, maybe get a little bit of advice from somebody who can speak to at-risk youth about how to make the right decisions when you are pulled in one direction versus another because that's what our next guest, Dr. Ken Polk, uh, did. Or Polky. We still have to clarify whether or not the E is there or not. But uh, Dr. Ken Polk is going to join us next on AM 1420 The This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by KeepingMedicareSimple.com and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Final hour is underway. Ten minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock now on this Thursday, the 18th morning of the fifth month, year of our Lord, 2023. It's been a very busy one. Um, if you missed uh, the interviews, uh, yeah, you're going to want to go back to the webpage uh, after the show. About an hour after the show, you'll have the whole show available for download on the podcast page, which is whkradio.com. Look for podcasts. You'll see it. 
We'll also have the interview I did in the first hour with Heather McDonald uh, up there by itself. It's a full 30 minutes, uh, 28 and a half, I guess I should say. We had a little glitch in the middle of the playback today, so you may have missed a portion of it. So I'm going to put it up there separately so that you uh, can listen to it in its, in its entirety while you're on a treadmill or something. It's a very important interview about some very important stuff. So we talked with uh, Heather McDonald. We had Dr. Everett Piper. In hour number two, we had Steve Moore, former financial advisor to President Donald J. Trump, or economic advisor, I guess I should say. Uh, really important stuff about ESG. And now we're going to pivot a little bit, talk about something from a different uh, point of view. This is a local story from a local guy uh, who's got some advice. He's sharing that advice with people and maybe more specifically with youth who need a little guidance. Uh, from somebody with experience. He had some choices to make when he was young. Uh, some of them were a little bit less than positive choices. And um, it looks like he made the right ones because he's had a hell of a career. He's had a hell of a, a hell of a life. Dr. Ken Polk, I'm dropping the E now because I wasn't sure earlier on. Uh, Dr. Ken Polk uh, is our guest. And uh, Dr. Polk um, has a book out called Conquering Your Adversaries. He's a native of Cleveland. He had a choice between mafia life, organized crime when he was younger, or finding his way out of that through sports. He chose sports and was very, very good at them. As a matter of fact, he ended up uh, with a little bit of a career in the National Football League before becoming a successful dentist. And Dr. Ken Polk joins us now to tell us how all that came about. Dr. Polk, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, for the time. Congratulations on the book, Conquering Your Adversities, uh, from the mafia-controlled streets to the NFL and ultimately ultimately becoming a doctor. It's a hell of a story. Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. Tell me about where you grew up. I know you're a Cleveland native, but uh, when you say mafia-controlled streets, what are we talking about? Well, specifically, Bob, we're talking about uh, the east side, and that would be Collinwood, mm-hmm. uh, which was controlled by uh, the Italian mafia, and, of course, then you had uh, Danny Green's Irish gang that uh, uh, came on to the forefront. And I think we all know the Danny Green story if we have seen the movie Kill the Irishman. And once I saw that movie, uh, it just dawned on me that I, I really needed to write a book, and, and that's what I have done. Yeah, and uh, tell us a little more about that, because, yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with the Danny Green story. I've talked about it. As a matter of fact, we talked about some of the... Uh, uh, you know, the Italian mafia control of Cleveland when I had uh, Michael Franzese on just uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, he's, of course, very well known, you know, in the world of organized crime. He, of course, rose above it and got out of it and is now a successful uh, inspirational speaker. And he works with that youth kids as well. Um, is that kind of why you wrote what you wrote? And is that kind of your message that you had the option well, I, of, of doing... I have two motivations here, Bob. One motivation was to give a tribute to my parents. Okay. And this is where uh, what kept me, along with football and sports, kept me out of that situation. I am sure by this age I would be laying in a, an alley with a bolt in the back of my head or perhaps just getting out of jail uh, like some of my uh, younger uh, teammates out of uh, Collinwood Little League that I played with. Uh, in fact, Danny Green and the mob would uh, recruit out of the little leagues in the Collinwood area to uh, to join a gang. Now they weren't very obvious about it, but this is where they knew that the up and coming uh, uh, stars were going to be in their organization, and that is what uh, was a constant battle. 
and uh, for my parents. So tribute number one was to my parents. Tribute number two was all along the way for all of those individuals that consider themselves underdogs, and I definitely was considered an underdog. I was told I was uh, too short, too fat, too ugly, uh, too something, too anything, and when I speak to my audiences, it's amazing how many folks raise their hand when I ask that question, how many of you have been told you were too slow, too fat, too whatever, and this is what my book calls to as a tribute to. Uh, I proved everybody wrong. Yes, I'm smart enough to become a doctor with enough work, and I was talented enough to make it into the NFL with a lot of hard work. So with perseverance and hard work, uh, this is what you can accomplish if this is something that you wish to uh, pursue. And now those are my two main messages. That's a, those are very good messages as well. Ken Polk is my guest. Dr. Ken Polk, his book is Conquering Your Adversities. Um, so going back to the choice that you make, because I know that's a big feature uh, uh, that you talk about on your on your website and when you, you present uh, to your to your uh, audiences when you speak, you talk about having a choice between the mafia lifestyle and going into sports and finding a way, a better way to live your life. Were you attracted to that? Did you have, um, you know, I'm thinking of Goodfellas and Henry Hill said, ever since I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster. As a young person growing up on those streets in that era, the Danny Green era, the Italian Mafia era, era was it attractive to you in any way? Did you, did you feel torn between those two directions? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt here, Bob. Uh, we knew when our games were and practices were during the day, during the week, and the gentlemen that hung around to watch us, uh, they all had, drove nice cars. They all had beautiful clothes. They all had beautiful women with them. And yet they didn't work. So we knew that they were different than the rest of the fathers in the neighborhood that were working nine-to-five jobs at some of the sweatshops in Collinwood or working in the Collinwood Railroad Yards or what have you. So we knew they were different, and we knew that that was a lifestyle that uh, was very envious, and we would all like it. However, there was a price tag to pay for that lifestyle, and the question was, did you want to pay that price tag? And for me, fortunately, with the, the discipline from my parents through sports, uh, the nuns uh, at the Catholic grade school I went to that beat us up every day, uh, they kept us in line, and if it wasn't for them, yeah, I, I would have followed that lifestyle for sure. Wow, that's uh, that's an amazing story. And, and, and I apologize, what high school? Uh, well, for high school, I went to Cleveland St. Joe's. And out of uh, Cleveland St. Joe's, just a little unknown tidbit, uh, there are 25 of us out of that high school that have played in the NFL, uh, Desmond Howard being one of them. Uh, the Golick brothers, Mike and Bob Golick, sure. uh, even Clark Kellogg that you see on CBS, uh, March yeah. Madness, although he didn't play football, uh, he was out of our high school as well. So these are some of the athletes that I had to compete with. And because of those kind of caliber of athletes, this is why I was told I was too slow, too fat, too ugly, too stupid, whatever. Uh, but I proved them all wrong. Yeah, and those are some elite people that you just named there uh, from St. Joe's. Yes. There's no question about it. So that is a right. that is a great accomplishment. So, and, and I can see obviously where it would be, uh, you know, a, a very uh, desirable thing to play sports for such an accomplished school like that as well. So you had the desire to be wealthy and to live that lifestyle that you talk about on the street, but also uh, pulling you in the opposite direction was the desire to you know play sports and, and make something of yourself that way. And you, you made the right choice. Is that kind of the message? too when you give speeches because 
it's not Italian mafia anymore, but there is still, you know, violent gang lifestyle out there, different types of gangs, street gangs as opposed to quote unquote organized crime families. And there's a lot of young kids who probably have to make that choice today between that lifestyle and a, li- and a, and a, and a life of academics and sports and, uh, you know, making something more positive of themselves. Right. And when you don't have a strong male role model in your family, either it be uh, your father for us, for my brother and I, Dennis, and I, if you don't have that male strong figure, if we also had a strong uh, uh, great uncle male figure in our great uncle Eddie Sims. Eddie Sims uh, is a great athlete in and of himself. He fought Joe Lewis in 1936 for the heavyweight title right there in Cleveland Public Hall, and then later on went on to uh, become uh, a movie star. He appeared in about 25 movies out in Hollywood with Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis. Uh, I, the list goes on and on. And then after that, he ended his career in Vegas when Vegas was taken off in the 50s. Uh, with Bugs, He was Bugsy Siegel's bodyguard. So my brother and I were fortunate and blessed to have those strong male figures that influenced us and were sure the mob kind of left us alone for the most part uh, because our Uncle Eddie, I'm sure, uh, sent word down, uh, leave my nephews and my nieces alone, uh, without a doubt. We are talking with uh, Dr. Ken Polk. He is uh, a success story, and it's a it's an interesting success story because he chose a life of, of of academics and athletics as opposed to a life of crime. His book is Conquering Your Adversities uh, from the Mafia-Controlled Streets to the NFL and Ultimately Becoming a Doctor. Tell me about your NFL uh, journey. Oh, wow. Uh, geez, where do I begin? Um, well, first of all, all my audiences are very amazed to find out that uh, – even though I made it to the NFL, there's only I only played in one game, started one game in my whole high school career, and yet I still got out of that one game. My coach showed that film to a number of universities. I was recruited just from that one game. I made the Cleveland Plain Dealer Dream Team just from that one game and ended up going to the University of Dayton on a four-year scholarship. So that's the kind of caliber of talent that St. Joe's had back in those days. Uh, where I was sitting the bench all four years. And uh, from the, from four years of uh, college, uh, I finally got my first college game in my junior year. And my very first game was against a guy that you probably remember uh, by the name of Ron Jaworski wow. uh, out of Youngstown State. And Ron mm-hmm. had a great NFL career, Super Bowl uh, player. And that was my very first uh, college game ever. And from that first game, the Dolphins had uh, been watching me because – they were naturally watching Ron Jaworski. And if we, if we hadn't played Ron Jaworski, the scouts would not have been there. And so there's been a, several times that the good Lord has been looking down and uh, paying some tribute here to me uh, and helping me along the way. So that's been uh, a great. And then also during my high school career, I had the great fortune of working out with Frank Ryan and Paul Warfield. And both of them, uh, I've, I've got to tell you this quick story, both of them independently told the Cleveland Plain Dealer writers that day, you keep an eye on this Ken Pohl kid, he's going to make it into the NFL. Uh, now here you've got two 64 championship uh, uh, players that uh, are predicting I'm going to make it to the NFL, but yet I only played one game in my whole high school career. And yet when I was with the Dolphins my first year uh, in my brief career, 
the first gentleman to meet me at the door was Paul Warfield. He was then with playing with the Miami Dolphins, and he came up to me and uh, shook my hand and said, see, I told you you were going to make it to the NFL. So I've got a whole chapter in my book about uh, that uh, God sent uh, happening to me and being blessed to, to work out with those great gentlemen. So the Browns players were very, very um, community-oriented, shall we say, and uh, they looked down upon, uh, uh, not looked down, but they wanted to help young players coming up through the ranks. And that was uh, a, a great blessing that uh, God bestowed upon me. Wow, that's an amazing story. Not too many people could say they made the NFL after starting one game in high school. Uh, you know, that's, that's incredible. Even to make it to college off of that one game is incredible, too. I want to ask you one last question about, uh, you know, one of your speeches or one of the topics you cover in your speeches as I look at your website, conquering your fears. What, what did you fear growing up? Or what did you fear in, you know, your adult life, uh, that you had to overcome to the point where you feel like sharing that message with people? Well, Bob, when uh, at the age of 9 or 10, when you're playing down around Euclid Creek, and after a rain, if you've ever been down in Euclid Creek after rain, it is looks like a flash flood. And when you're down there playing by the Euclid Creek and the waters are just raging by, and you look across the other side of the creek and you see four or five gentlemen that are beating up another gentleman, and the last punch knocks this kid into these raging waters, you, you know you just witnessed the murder. And you're running for your life to get back home. Uh, and as you're running home, you get bit by a dog who takes a pretty nasty chunk out of your leg, uh, and you end up in Euclid uh, General Hospital that day, these are some of the things that you fear coming out of that neighborhood. Also, when you uh, go to the playground to play a game of basketball and you ask where Joey is, and you find out that uh, Joey is sleeping, quote-unquote, sleeping with the fish. Well, you know exactly what that means, and you know never to ask about Joey ever again. And when you've been attacked, when you've been in gang fights, uh, on the corner of the East 200th Street, which I think there's a Home Depot there now, and all of a sudden the car windows, as you're waiting for a red light, car windows come caving in because tire chains and tire irons are bashing in the car windows. Those are some of the things. And when you've been attacked by uh, a kid at the playground who's yielding a machete, and not just a knife, but a machete attacks you, those are some of the things, some of the ad- adversities coming out of the Collinwood neighborhood. Wow. Well, I can understand why uh, it does. It takes a certain certain mindset to be able to conquer and overcome those fears. I can see why that's a big part of what you present. So, uh, Dr. Ken Polk, his book is Conquering Your Adversities. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, I really appreciate hearing your story. It's quite a unique one. One game of high school football all the way to a college career and then a, and then a stint in the NFL and now a successful professional career as a dentist. Dr. Polk, I appreciate you sharing that. Hopefully people can take something away from this. Oh, very good. Well, thank you for having me on, Bob. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. God bless. Thank you, sir. You too. Bye-bye. It's uh, 1126 now. We're going to take a time out and come right back. Got one segment to go. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Liberty and holding the line against the darkness of tyranny. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. Okay, eleven thirty-three, final segment of the broadcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five if you would like to get in uh on the conversation. But uh I want to share a little bit of audio with you, video slash audio on this end. 
Um, this is big. Let me get the calls in first because I, I want to close with this. Uh, there's a weaponization hearing going on right now. The uh, weapons weaponization subcommittee uh, in the House Judiciary, the weaponization of the federal government against the people. They're hearing testimony from whistleblowers, FBI whistleblowers, who are telling the truth and literally blowing the whistle about what was being done to target people and what was done to them once they began to push back against it. Um, it's extraordinary, and I'm going to share a little bit of that audio with you. But let me get a couple of quickies in here from Dan in Middleburg Heights first. Dan, you're on AM 1420. The answer, go ahead, sir. Hello, Dan. Can you hear me? All right. I'm not hearing Dan. Hello? Yep. Hello? Oh, I hear Hello? you. Yeah, Hello? go ahead, sir. Yeah. Good morning. I usually talk to you on political issues, but uh, I listened to Ken Polk interview. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, going back into the 80s, uh, I was a leader of one of the top 10 touch football teams that played on a national level in the country. Right. And he played for one out of St. Joe's. Okay. And he mentioned all those players, Golick and all that. And he's absolutely correct. And I just wanted to vouch for him that, uh, that I, uh, we used to scrimmage them. Okay. On getting ready for regular seasons and all that. They, they had a great touch football team and he was, uh, through, through people and St. Joe's, he was a quarterback for that team. Okay. So, well, uh, I've, I've talked to him and, uh, everything that he was telling you about is true. And, uh, he's it's a, a very story. high quality, a really great, uh, excellent quarterback. Yeah, yeah, and it's a great story, and I love the fact that, and thank you for the uh, testimonial to that, Dan. I appreciate it. I'm sure he does, too, about his abilities. Uh, but I love the, the, the story more than the outcome. I love the story that he grew up in an area, in the Collinwood area, where it was very, very easy for kids to become enamored with the, uh, you know, with the mafia lifestyle or the organized crime lifestyle, the freebies and all of the fun stuff that pulls a lot of people into that, and uh, he chose to go a different, different direction. I was fortunate enough to go to St. Joe's and be able to do the things he did, but it's a great story. Thank you, my friend. Uh, let's go uh, to Brexville, and this is Sweet Pea, according to my call screen. Sweet Pea, go right ahead. Hey, good looking. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you, too. I, can, I just got to tell you, Tuesday morning I had a meeting with Mark King. Okay. And I, I walked into that meeting not knowing about Medicaid, Medicare, Plan A, B, C, D, F, G, and all that. <laughs> yeah. And when I walked out, I, I I know it all. He explained it in such a way, in diagrams, it was phenomenal. And, and when I come across somebody like that, I, I've got to praise them, because most people don't do that. And that's why I'm calling you to say, hey, thanks for turning me on to Mark King, and he's a hell of a guy. Well, I love hearing that story. First of all, I'm happy for you that you understand what the uh, Medicare is all about now so that you can get the best coverage that you need. And I really appreciate you, uh, the testimonial from Mark, because he is a hell of a guy. That's the reason I tell people about him every day. And thank you for the call, Sweet Pea. Uh, you know, three times a day I tell you about Mark King and uh, his entire staff over there. I'm not joking. Uh, the, the, the company he runs is called Keeping Medicare Simple. And Medicare, as you just heard him say, Medicare, ABC, it's not simple. It's very complex. You need somebody who understands it and can break it down, who is patient, who will explain things until you get it and until you make the right choices for you. And that's what that's what Mark does. So appreciate that call. Thank you, sweet Pete. Uh, I want to get to this audio. Let's let, let's jump in here. This is um this is a portion of the testimony delivered this morning by um, Garrett O'Boyle of. of an FBI special agent 
who was transferred across the country only to be suspended on his first day as part of the punishment for daring to tell the truth about what the corrupt, weaponized FBI is doing to the people and what it did to him and his family for daring to speak out about it. This is, this is testimony that's going on right now. Questions and answers uh, at the uh, uh, Committee for the Weaponization of the FBI, Weaponization of the Government Against the People. But this is from earlier this morning. Chairman Jordan, members of the committee, thank you for addressing FBI malfeasance and allowing me to speak today. Aside from that point of gratitude, I'm sad, I'm disappointed, and I'm angry that I have to be here to testify about the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ. Weaponization against not only its own employees, but against those institutions and individuals that are supposed to protect the American people. I am here today because even though I am wrongfully suspended from the FBI, I remain duty-bound to the American people to play my small role in rectifying these issues. After all, I never swore an oath to the FBI. I swore an oath to the Constitution. I've served my nation and community my entire adult life, first in the United States Army, then as a police officer, and lastly as an FBI special agent. Shortly after high school, I joined the United States Army where I served in the infantry, and I was quickly promoted through the ranks. I'm going to fast forward through some of the biography part here, biographical information on uh, on this particular whistleblower, Garrett O'Boyle, and get to some of the more um, disturbing portions of his testimony. And this is just part of his opening statement. I volunteered for, tried out for, and was selected for a new unit the FBI created. I also received an award for my work on an anti-abortion extremism case. I've been smeared as a malcontent and subpar FBI employee. This smear stands in stark contrast to my life in public service. This smear campaign, disgusting as it is, is unsurprising. Despite our oath to uphold the Constitution, too many in the FBI aren't willing to sacrifice for the hard right over the easy wrong. They see what becomes of whistleblowers, how the FBI destroys their careers, suspends them under false pretenses, takes their security clearances and pay with no true options for real recourse or remedy. This is by design. It creates an Orwellian atmosphere that silences opposition and discussion. We know what is right to do, yet we too often refuse to do what is right because of the difficulty and suffering it incurs. I couldn't knowingly continue on this path silently without speaking out against the weaponization I witnessed, even if it meant losing my job, my career, my livelihood, my family's home, and now my anonymity. It's up to members of this committee current and former FBI employees, and indeed all Americans, to ensure that the weaponization of our own government against the people comes to an end, no matter the personal cost. As James Madison prudently opined, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and the next place, oblige it to control itself. The safeguards currently in place at the FBI are clearly inadequate and must be reworked to protect whistleblowers and others who are inappropriately targeted. The FBI can extract whatever they want from me. I'm willing to bear that burden. I've sworn to defend this country from enemies, both foreign and domestic, even if that means sacrificing my life. I've lived that oath out since first enlisting in the Army, consistently saying, here am I, send me. My oath, however, did not include sacrificing the hopes, dreams, and livelihood of my family. My strong, beautiful, and courageous wife, and our four sweet and beautiful daughters who have endured this process along with me. In weaponized fashion, the FBI allowed me to accept orders to a new position halfway across the country. They allowed us to sell my family's home. They ordered me to report to the new unit when our youngest daughter was two weeks old. Then, on my first day on the new assignment, they suspended me, rendering my family homeless. 
They refused to release our goods, including our clothes, for weeks. <clears throat> All I wanted to do was serve my country by stopping bad guys and protecting the innocent. To my chagrin, bad guys have begun running parts of the government, making it difficult to continue to serve this nation and protect the innocent. But I, for one, will never stop trying. And I will never forget my oath. Thank you. That was just the opening statement of the first of, I believe, four whistleblowers who are testifying before the Weaponization Subcommittee today. And it's enough to, like I said, disturb you, if not make you completely infuriated. At least that's how I feel about it. He and his family were rendered homeless by an FBI that was punitive in nature, an FBI that sought to punish and to harm those who would speak out against their own law-breaking indefensible actions against the American people. There are heroes who, st- you know, we, we have lawmakers, conservative lawmakers, right now in the House that have called for, uh, you know, the, the, the FBI to be abolished and re- restarted and, and reimagined with new leadership because it is so corrupt it's beyond, it's beyond description. Uh, a presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, has called for the shutting down of the FBI because of its corrupt uh, leadership. Uh, in no way does that reflect all of the people who work for the FBI, including people like Garrett O'Boyle and the others who were there testifying today. They see and saw what was going on. They saw the corruption. They saw the malfeasance. They saw everything that was being done to target the American people by our own law enforcement agencies at the federal level, such as the FBI, and they did something about it. Remember the old adage, weren't we once told, see something, say something? Well, they saw something, they said something, and then they suffered the consequences. Because they cannot, they being the corrupt FBI leadership and the corrupt Biden administration, under whom that FBI served and where they took their marching orders, and the DOJ run by Merrick Garland, they cannot allow the American public to know that everything that's going on is planned, that it's coordinated, that it is colluded with. And I use that word with special emphasis because of the Durham report and the accusations of collusion between Donald Trump's campaign and the uh, and the Russians. There has been collusion in the federal government, but it's been collusion amongst agencies at the highest levels with the DNC and Democrat administrators and executives targeting the American people. And that's where we'll leave it for now. If you missed the interviews today, particularly uh, Heather McDonald, they'll be posted about an hour from now, eh, maybe less than an hour from now, uh, at whkradio.com. Thanks to my interviewees, thanks to my uh, uh, staff, and thanks to you for listening. Be well, be safe, stay free. See you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.